Let me begin this message by asking you, if you would call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, would you, is that how you would define yourself? Now, if you're, if you're wrestling with the answer to that question, let me assure you, let me encourage you by saying that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope of heaven, his sacrifice on the, on the cross and payment for your sins, if you've put your trust in him, and you are trying to follow him in any way, at any level, which you are, it indicates that you are by being here this morning, then yes, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You may not be following as well as you would like to, but if you've trusted Christ and, and you're making any effort in this joy, this, this heartbreak, this challenge known as the Christian life, then you are his disciple. Good news. The passage that uh, this morning is, is from Mark, and, and a central theme of Mark's gospel is discipleship. At the end of chapter 8, this gospel that we've been studying now since September, this, this account of Jesus' life, but especially of his death and resurrection, begins to take a turn. It shifts And Jesus is going to be moving toward Jerusalem where he will die for sinners. At the end of chapter 8, there is a powerful call to discipleship. We're not going to get there until next week, but we're moving in that direction. The title of this series is The Way of the King. The Way of the King is the Way of the Cross. And maybe maybe a more complete title would be the way of the disciple is the way of the king, which is the way of the cross. If you are following Jesus and and he's heading to the cross, and if the life of the disciple is characterized by the cross, and, and everything in the New Testament says that this is not your best life now, that that is to come then you would do well if all of that is true. You're following Jesus. He's heading to the cross, so therefore you're heading to the cross. Then we would all do well to acknowledge that this is not an easy life. It's it's tough. I suppose one of the most disappointing realities of being a follower of Jesus Christ for me is my inability to conquer myself. You ever feel that way? I ought to get some amens on that, you know. About you, not about me. I mean, I, I got, you, you know, I got enough to take care of. What, what would you say is your greatest failure? What is the sin that so easily distracts you? What is the one thing that you feel like, if I could just get a handle on this one thing, then life would be easier, even if it's not perfect, It would be much easier. I have a suspicion that what you have identified, and you did that fairly quickly, I imagine, but I have a suspicion what you identified is not your greatest weakness, your greatest failure, your greatest sin, even if it is what appears to give you the most trouble. As we read our text, I want you to see if you can identify the greatest need or the greatest challenge that lies before a disciple of Jesus Christ. Before we read, um, 
I'm not going to read all of it, so let me just, all of our text, which is uh, Mark 8, 1 through 26. Um, let me <clears throat> just let you know that Mark is, uh, is following a pattern in chapter 8 that has already been established in chapter 6. I mean, we're seeing almost an identical, and remember, he, he didn't write this in, entirely chronologically. He's writing with a purpose in mind. And so there's a pattern that's going on in 6. It's repeated in chapter 8. Jesus feeds a large multitude. There's a lake crossing, a dispute with the Pharisees, a discussion about bread, a healing, and a confession of faith. It, all, it, it happens the same way. You've got all these things going on. Today's text is really Mark 8, 1 through 21, but verses 22 and 26 sort of serve as an axis on which the whole book turns. It begins to move. It begins to, to shift. And, and this story, and this, this story account of a miracle of Jesus in verses 22 to 26 sort of look back and they look forward at the same time. So we'll cover it briefly this morning, reference it next week as well. In the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is feeding 4,000 men plus women and children. Now, we fed 5,000 back in chapter 6. The difference is almost all of the people he fed in chapter 6 were Jews or those who had converted to Judaism. Now, in chapter 8, he begins to expand and he's feeding mostly Gentiles. We know that because of his location. He's in Gentile territory and they've come in those masses to listen to him, and he feeds that many people as well. Then Jesus and the disciples crossed the Lake of Galilee back to Jewish territory. By the way, I was hearing this week about Hudson Taylor. Made 10 trips between Britain and China. Um, It's calculated that he spent five to six years of his life on the water. Think about that. Today, when you're standing in line at the fast food restaurant, it doesn't move quite as quickly as you would like. So Jesus set the pattern, I suppose, for Hudson Taylor. I mean, they're always on the, they're on the water again. So <clears throat> moving back to Jewish territory. In the interest of time, that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 11. <clears throat> so if you would, please stand for the reading of the word. <clears throat> The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, a totally different kind of sigh than last week. He sighed with compassion last week. This week he's sighing with exasperation. Why does this generation seek a sign Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another, the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see and having ears to hear. Do you, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000 for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, just like last week. Led him out of the village. And when he spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. I don't want this word out just yet. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes. Help us to see clearly your word. Help us to see Jesus in whom it pleased the Father that all the preeminence dwell. May he be lifted up and exalted in our midst this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. This past week, I, I profited greatly from being at a conference in Minneapolis. Now, I won't tell you it was cold outside. I didn't spend a lot of time Outside, I spent um, a, I, I walked for about a block and a half at one point, and it was, uh, I was really, look, it gets that cold up at TVR. It, I, the coldest I ever saw up there at TVR was like 17 or 19 below zero, and it was 27 below zero all around us, and our thermometer was up against a not-so-greatly-insulated building, so I'm sure it was colder than that there. But this is going to sound very Tolkien, but it's like the cold had settled in there. You know, it's like you could feel it in the concrete, and it was just kind of around your your feet. It was cold outside, but it was warm. In fact, it was hot inside with these guys preaching. I loved what I heard this week. It it was a pastor's conference, and, and the theme was the pasture, the vine, and the branches. And over the next few weeks, I'm sure you're going to hear a lot of what I heard this past week. I'll begin by sharing a quote by John Owen, the 17th century Puritan pastor teacher. Some people have said that that that, that England has never produced or the, there has never been a greater English mind than that of John Owen. And the context for this quote is Sinclair Ferguson was preaching from Romans 6, and particularly Romans six fourteen. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Romans 6 essentially tells us you don't have to sin. You're in Jesus. You don't have to sin. Romans 7 tells us Adam is still with you, and so you will sin. And then Romans 8 says lean on the Spirit of God who will perfect this life in you. Um, but 
Romans 6 in particular, we just don't spend enough time there. And these words, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Ferguson quoted John Owen, who said, As a pastor, you'll have two problems, two challenges. First, persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that they are indeed under the dominion of sin. And secondly, persuading those who are not under the dominion of sin that they are not under the dominion of sin. And it's it's perfect. It's perfect. I mean, and today's text is a perfect example of the challenge that Owen delivered. In fact, the entire New Testament bears out the truth of Owen's words. Either you're under the dominion of sin or you're not under the dominion of sin. Or you can say it this way, either you follow Jesus or you don't. Look at the two primary groups of people that are represented in the portion of the text that we're reading this morning. Pharisees and disciples. Rejectors of Jesus, followers of Jesus. But they shared a failure in one area, though on different planes and at different levels. The problem of unbelief. Let's start with the Pharisees. Now, they wanted a sign. In his gospel, John calls miracle signs. We've talked about this a lot. Miracles Jesus performed these miracles to affirm, to attest to the message that he was giving so that people would see the miracles and believe. Pharisees didn't believe. They saw the miracles over and over. Jesus opened the eyes of blind, caused deaf to hear, lame to walk, cast out demons, rose people. He, he raised people from the dead. And they didn't walk. This is the same group of people that would, upon hearing that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, said, we got to kill him. And then later said, you know, we need to kill Lazarus because people are going to get the wrong idea about this man who was in the tomb for four days walking around alive now. We don't want him to have the wrong idea. Kill him too. So that people wouldn't believe in Jesus. The Pharisees weren't demanding a miracle. They'd seen a lot of them. They wanted some sort of apocalyptic scene in the heavens. Blood red skies, a voice booming from heaven, lightning and thunder saying, this is the Son of God. Actually, they wanted to kill Jesus and silence his voice. They didn't want any of that. Now, if I'd been in Jesus' shoes, I think I would have called down lightning from heaven to strike just the leader of the group. You know, just boom! He's gone. Everybody else is standing there, you know. And then I think God that he is far more merciful to me than I am at times to others. Make no mistake, though, Jesus' response was not in the realm of God loves you. Have a nice day. In fact, we don't get the full impact of what Jesus is saying in the English translation. He used an oath of sort, sorts, and he didn't, he didn't complete the oath. You know, he, he stopped part way for impact, like, you know, kind of like, why I oughta, I oughta. You know, it was kind of like that. He, he says in the, in, in the 
in the literal translation. He said, if a sign were given to this generation, if you were to get what you asked, and then he stopped. See, when my father would say, if you do that one more time, boy, he didn't have to complete it. I knew what, was, what, was, what else was there. I'm going to wear you out. That's what he meant. You can't say that publicly today. You can say it privately, but not publicly. Essentially, what Jesus was saying was this. If a sign is given to this generation, this wicked, evil generation, may I drop dead on the spot. You're not getting what you're asking for because you're not looking for it. Jesus was angry with them for their unbelief and their cynicism. I'd like to say just a word to those of you, and I I, I realize if if it's anybody, it would be a small minority in here. And I don't say this with, with this arrogant heart. If, if you're questioning God, but your questions are not honest in, in nature, you're really not looking for an answer. If you're looking for God to prove himself to you, it's highly doubtful that you're ever going to find him, that you're ever going to believe. You might say, show me God that you exist, and then I will believe you. But the Lord says an entirely different thing. He says, Believe me, and then you will know that I exist. You may think people, religious people, look down on you because of your activities or your political views. But it's your unbelief that will end up costing It will cost you in the end when you stand before a God that you deny. Even though you heard about his free gift of salvation in Jesus. Look, you may be an extremely moral person and you're offended by someone says that you need to come to the Lord broken about your sin and to cast yourself on the mercy of God and Jesus. You may be an extremely moral person. The Pharisees were. That's why they were offended. But if you trust in your good works rather than stand in Jesus' righteousness, it's not going to be enough on that day. In fact, you will find him a terrible judge on the last day. Most of you, in fact, I, I'm going to guess the, the large majority of you here have believed not only that Jesus was and is the Son of God, but you have believed that he died in your place to save you for your sins. That's settled in your heart and mind. Your greatest challenge is to be more committed to spiritual disciplines or somehow to get control of the habits that have have crept in your life and that scare you because they seem to be dangerously in the way of an addiction down the road if you don't get a hold of this. Or or you just may need to participate more in in certain activities that, that advance the kingdom. Maybe it's not that what you're doing is so bad, but it just keeps you from serving because your your focus is somewhere else and you just need to get that adjusted. That's your greatest challenge, right? One of those. No. 
your greatest hindrance to the life that Jesus has called you to is unbelief. And your greatest challenge is to believe. (laughs) One of the things that Sinclair Ferguson pointed out this week, he says, he was talking about, he was talking from Colossians 3 on this occasion, and he he says, Paul is, he's a Scottish, and I won't even try, but it was beautiful the way his, his, his accent, kind of like that Australian, you know, when Allison's reading me to sleep every night, reading scripture. And so, but he, he's talking about it, you know, in, in, in Colossians, how Paul is playing the role of the irritating preacher, where he tells you what to do and he doesn't tell you how to do it. He said the pattern today is the preacher tells you what to do and you go to the Christian bookstore to learn how to do it. And, and, he, and it was not a compliment of the books that are on the front shelf of the Christian bookstore. Quit worrying so much about how to do this, how to accomplish, how to do better, and just believe. Get in the Word and believe what you see. And the action is going to follow. The good behavior is going to follow. The evangelism is going to follow. Everything is going to follow if you exalt Jesus in your heart and mind. Very soon after the confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus said, get in the boat. Here they go. Across the Sea of Galilee yet again. And with the debate still ringing in Jesus' ears and hearts, He says, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus was warning the disciples against the unbelief that would lead to greater dependency on self. He was warning them against the sin of unbelief that would lead them to greater dependency on themselves, whether that be the Pharisees who trusted in their righteousness or whether it be Herod who said, who cares about any of that? Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Let's have a big time. Let's party. He said that's all a debilitating, a spreading influence just like the leaven of bread. Jesus was talking about unbelief. And the disciples thought he was talking about bread. Man, I, I, I've been in that case so many times. I used to be so sure about Scripture, you know. And I'd say, well, what we're talking about here is bread. And, you know, I didn't hear it, but in heaven they were going, eh, wrong answer. Don't, I'm not thanking you for playing. Get it right, boy. It's essentially what's going on. I mean, the disciples were saying to each other, oh, man, he's talking about bread. We've only got one loaf of bread. We may, who knows where we're going? We may be on a long trip. We should have brought more bread. Hey, who's, who's responsible? Philip, weren't you supposed to get the bread? I mean, how do you move from the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod to, to Philip forgot the bread? Jesus was just distraught. He said, you don't get it, do you? I'm not worried about bread. Your your answer indicates that at some level, you don't understand who I am. You don't believe that I'll take care of you. You don't even know why I've come. Now, I really want to cut the disciples some slack here. I mean, nobody understood. Nobody got it until after the resurrection of Christ. But 
do you want to be the one to say, lighten up, Jesus? Come on, give these guys a break. And I, help yourself. I think I'll pass. <laughs> so rather than being offended by Jesus' harsh tone over what seemed to be an honest misunderstanding, let's try to gain some sense of why he rebuked them the way that he did. I mean, this rebuke is not at all the same as Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees who were cynical and hard-hearted. The disciples weren't cynical. They were just dull. Jesus had told them to beware of unbelief and self-reliance across the entire spectrum from legalism to lawlessness. He said, that's all of that. Your dependence is, is here. I'm trying to get you to focus here. I mean, twice the disciples had witnessed him feed large multitudes with very little bread and fish. And surely he had quoted to them what he did to Satan in his battle. Man, from Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Over and over, Jesus had talked about the superiority of the spiritual food that we are to partake of above physical food. And so he expected them to make the connection that belief, unbelief in any form would spread through a person's heart, contaminating the whole. They were living far too much independence on what was right in front of their own eyes and, and far too much on, on the resources that they had available to take care of things. They weren't seeing the big picture. Well, actually, the big, bigger picture really wasn't their responsibility. Their responsibility was to acknowledge that there is a bigger picture and someone else is in charge of it and I'm trusting him. I have to believe Jesus is in charge of my life and whatever happens is okay. Jesus' exasperation is, we might say, rather extreme. I mean, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't, do you not yet perceive or understand or your hearts harden? Having eyes you do not see, ears you don't hear, do you not remember? Wow, this is, look, he is, he, he is challenging them right to the edge of their relationship. This is Old Testament language about people having eyes but not seeing, ears but not hearing. And do you not remember? No, they didn't remember. That was the problem. 4,000, 5,000. They should have understood that God was far more aware of their situation than they were. But we have the same, exact same memory lapses, don't we? I mean, just last week, God delivered us from some trial or he met our needs in a way that just made no sense at all or he forgave us just last week or, or yesterday. We, we fret over the little things when God wants us to focus on the bigger picture by focusing on Jesus. 
So in the way that you're living your life today, what is it about God's grace, God's provision, God's mercy that you've forgotten? That you don't remember. You know, marriage counselors, whenever couples are having a really tough time, one of the one of the great things to ask is, what attracted you to each other? What have you forgotten about that was so special about this person? What about Jesus is no longer special to you? What is it that you don't remember? I don't like to think of myself is judgmental, but lately as I have found fault with others, the Holy Spirit has graciously reminded me that I should be glad that the Father treats me with much more mercy than I am prone at times to treat others. He's reminded me that it's far too easy for me to find satisfaction in material possessions rather than know that my treasure is in Christ and not in this world. It's the next world in which Jesus will be worshipped by everybody present. He has reminded me that my identity is found in Christ, not in my successes and failure, whether it's in my personal life or professional life. He's reminded me that my health, which is more and more in question as I get older, is in His hands, that my union with Jesus is far superior to a good report from the doctor although I want it just like you do. He has reminded me that even though my life may make no sense at all to me right now, it will make perfect sense to me when I am perfect. In short, the Holy Spirit has told me through the Father's Word to believe Jesus. The miracle that occurs in verses 22 to 26 affirms the difficulty the apostles were experiencing and would continue to experience until after the resurrection. Now, this is an unusual miracle. It's a two-stage miracle. He spits on the eyes, guy, uh, the guy's eyes. That's, that's lovely, I know. And, and, and then he, <clears throat> he says, do you see anything? And he says, I see trees walking around. Maybe the man had been able to see earlier. Maybe not. Then he puts his hands, his fingers on him again, and he sees. Mark is the only one that records this miracle. There's no other two-stage miracle that I'm aware of in, in, in Jesus' healings. And it's the, where it is placed, again, remember, Mark's got a purpose for writing this gospel. It's placed right after he's saying to the disciples, you don't get it, what's your problem? Their eyes were partially open. But they would one day see clearly. Right after this, we're going to see this next week. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter, in his humility, doesn't record that it was him who said, because Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. He doesn't say, and then I stepped up and said, you're the Messiah. It just says the disciples said he was the Messiah. But then... Immediately afterwards, Jesus starts talking about heading to Jerusalem, dying, being crucified, and uh, rising from the dead after that. And it is Peter who's 
speaks up and says, no, Lord, you can't be serious about that. You can't do that. I mean, who rises from the dead? You can't be crucified. He just said, you're the Messiah, you're God. And then he's immediately saying, but but your plan is crazy. He sees men walking like trees. Maybe that's kind of where you feel like you are in your relationship with Christ. You see men walking like trees. You see, I can't, it just doesn't make sense. Look, hang in there. Continue to believe, believe Jesus. Let God be God. Let him bring into your life whatever he brings into your life and just say, I accept it. I believe you. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. My life is yours. Do with me as you will. Believe him. And it will become more and more clear. The disciples look to Jesus for salvation. But not to Jesus' life itself. John Calvin in the Institutes of Christian Religion said this about setting one's heart fully on Jesus. Quote, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it anywhere else. If we seek salvation... We are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of Him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity in His conception, if gentleness, it appears in His birth. For by his birth he was made like us in all respects. That he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell. All Calvin means by this is that when Jesus died on the cross, he suffered spiritual death as well as physical death. The father turned his eyes away and it's as as if Jesus suffered in hell for all eternity for me. When I believe him, he has paid the price. The wrath of God was not only satisfied on Jesus, it was exhausted on Jesus. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was done. He didn't descend into hell after that and suffer for three more days. If mortification of the flesh in his tomb. If newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven. Jesus' resurrection and your resurrection in the future are one and the same event happening at different times. It's why Jesus is called the first fruits 
of the resurrection. And if our hope of entrance in inheritance in the heavenly kingdom is in him, it's in his entrance into heaven. If protection, if security, if abundant supply of all his blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given to him to be judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Let's pray.